We're going to be uh, looking at John's gospel again today, uh, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some ushers who have some Bibles. Uh, we keep them in the entryway there. You can always grab one on your way in. But if you didn't and you'd like one, uh, it might be helpful to have one open. So just catch their eye and uh, you can do that. Otherwise, you know, I'd invite you to uh, use an app or whatever else you have that can get you there. So join me in prayer, would you? Father, it's a privilege to look into your word. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, help us to be attentive to your voice and responsive to your spirit as you seek to lead us. And I pray that all of this would result in glory to you as you touch and transform lives and use us in your service. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are you willing to do for love? That's, uh, that's a question I just kind of want to have us think about. What are you willing to do for love? Let me tell you a little bit about Rachel and Jacob and what Jacob was willing to do for love. And I'm not talking about Jacob and Rachel Orff. I'm talking about <laughs> Jacob and Rachel uh, from Genesis chapter 29. Jacob uh, was willing to work 14 years to get Rachel as his bride. Worked for an unscrupulous guy, a real rascal named Laban. And uh, so he worked seven years. That was the agreement. And then Laban tricked him and gave him his older daughter, Leah, the one he didn't want, and said, no, to get Rachel, you got to go another seven. So 14 years total working for this rascal named Laban to get the woman he wanted, the woman he loved. That's what he was willing to do for love. What are we willing to do for love? Here's another one. Dashrath Manji, a destitute man in a village in India named Galur, lost his wife when he could not take her to get attention from a doctor after she had fallen off a cliff. And so he spent the next 22 years breaking stones in the mountains to create a road 400 feet long and 30 feet wide to connect their little village to their nearby city where a doctor was. And his motive was to provide people from his village with access to medical care so that nobody would lose a loved one like he did. 22 years breaking rocks for love. What are we willing to do for love? Here's one more. In what has been dubbed the greatest romance of the 20th century, King Edward VIII of England gave up the throne for the woman he loved, an American woman who had been twice divorced. And up until that point, his title had been King of the United Kingdom and the Dominions of the British Empire and Emperor of India. There's a title. He gave it all up for love. So, what are we willing to do for love? I wash the dishes sometimes. Sometimes. All right, take a look at John's Gospel, chapter 14. And in the Bridge Bibles, it's uh, page 752. We'll look at uh, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. And, and as I read it, I would like us all to look and see the connection between love and what we're willing to do. That's the vital connection in this passage. Connection between love and what we're willing 
to do. So, starting at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This passage has a lot to say about love and what love will lead us to do. The two major themes stand out in this passage. One is love leads to obedience, and then the second is God gives us help. And those two themes alternate throughout the whole passage. Verse 15 begins the alternating of, of those two themes, uh, speaking about love and obedience. If you love me, keep my commands. And then verses 16 through 20, he takes up the other theme about God giving us help in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then 29 to 31, back to this theme of love leading to obedience. And then in 25 to 28, back to the theme of God giving us help. And then the final two verses, or three verses, 29 to 31, back to that theme of love leading to obedience once again. Alternating back and forth between those things. They, they work together. They depend on one another. Obedience bookends the passage. We see it in verse 15. We see it at the end in verse 31. And it's obedience prompted by love. But even that isn't possible without God's help. So those two themes 
come back again and again. So let's take a look at them one at a time. First, love leads to obedience. Now, an interesting thing happens in this chapter, and it happens twice. Two places in this chapter have sparked a minor debate among scholars, and the question is, are you ready? Imperative or indicative? That's the question. And you're all thinking right now, I'm so glad you brought that up. I have been struggling with that for a long, long time. Okay, here we go. In verse 1, take a look. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. There's the first place where it happens. You believe in God is an indicative statement. It's a statement, right? Believe also in me is, is a command. It's an imperative. Okay, so we, we have the both of them. The interesting thing, though, is that the verb in each case is identical. And so in the one case, uh, translators have rendered it an indicative, in the other case, an imperative. The form of the verb is exactly the same. How do you know, then, what was intended? Only the context will tell. And different translations of the Bible may render it in different ways. So, it happens again then in verse 15, the start of our passage for today. Is it imperative or is it indicative? If you love me, keep my commands. Which is that? That's imperative, right? That's, that's a command to keep his commands. But other translations, since the verb form is the same, whether it's indicative or imperative, other ones render it and indicative. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. A statement, not a command in itself. Now, you may think, well, that's not such a big thing. Um, I, think, I think it is. Here's, here's the difference. Um, it's either, if you love me, keep my commands, do this, and that's the way the NIV renders it. That's the way the New Living renders it as well. Or it's, if you love me, you will keep my commands. A statement, a promise, if you will. And that's the way the English Standard, the uh, Christian Standard, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard all render it. And, you know, scholars have been divided over it for a long time. But what's the difference? What's the deal? Well, think of this. If it's, if you love me, keep my commands... The emphasis is on what? It's on us. It's on our keeping his commands, our effort. But if it's, if you love me, you will keep my commands, the emphasis is on what? On loving Christ and what flows out of loving Christ. You see the difference? Our effort or loving Christ. Now, the our effort one can lead to this idea, if you love me, you're going to try harder to obey me. So the focus needs to be on better effort. But if, it's, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. Then it's love showing up in obedience. So focus on your relationship with Christ. 
It's a pretty big difference between those two. I think it's the latter. I think it's if you love me, you're going to show that in how you live. You'll be keeping my commands. Now, shift gears a little bit and think about the Ten Commandments because it works the same way. One way is to look at the Ten Commandments and see them as things we have to do. The emphasis is on our effort. But it's possible also to look at them and see them as a description of a life that's in a right relationship with God and the things that flow out of that relationship. Take the first commandment, for instance. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that looks like an imperative, doesn't it? Looks like a prohibition. But you can also see it as a description of someone who loves God. If you love me, you won't want to worship anything else. You will have no other gods before me. You see the difference? And it's the same for all 10. Let me just flip open to Exodus 20 for a second and just walk you through it real quick. So, if you love me, you'll have no other gods. If you love me, you won't make any graven images. If you love me, you won't misuse my name. If you love me, you'll remember the Sabbath. You'll honor your parents. You won't murder. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't give false testimony. You won't covet. All of these things flowing out of a relationship with God. Descriptions of what life looks like when we are rightly related to God. The relationship between love and obedience is an important one. And so Jesus bookends this passage by talking about love and obedience. In verse 15, our obedience is the result of our love for Christ. And in verse 31, Jesus' obedience to the Father is evidenced by his willingness to go to the cross, and it's the result of his love for the Father. Love leads to obedience. And the obedience that Jesus talks about in verse 31 that led him to the cross is really tough obedience. It's costly love. Obedience is a big deal to Jesus because it's a reflection of our love for him. Look at verse 15 again. If you love me, keep my commands. Our love for him is, is a reflection. Um, our, our obedience to him is a reflection of our love for him. Look, drop, drop down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Drop down to verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Verse 24. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Our love for Jesus shows up in how we live in response to him. Now, it may not be such a big deal to us because we, frankly, don't hear a lot about obedience these days. I think we hear a lot more about forgiveness. But when we find it easier to do what we know is wrong because we're banking on getting forgiveness, what does that say? 
Have we lost the idea of difficult obedience? Have we cheapened the idea of the grace of God? Do we presume upon God's grace? I remember when my daughter Leah was in grade school and uh, she was talking with a classmate of hers who was also a pastor's kid. You gotta watch out for pastor's kids, you know. And the reason pastor's kids are kind of kind of off is because they, they play with elders' kids. Just saying. Anyway, she was talking with her little friend from a different denomination, and, and her friend knew just enough theology to be dangerous. And she said she didn't worry about obedience because she could go to church on Sunday and take communion and get forgiveness. So obedience doesn't matter. That's bad theology. Do we help people to continue to follow Christ and obey him when the going gets hard? Do we prepare people for that? And when we give up rather than press on through difficult obedience, are we presuming upon the grace of God? Just a word to parents. What children learn in the home, they transfer to their understanding of God. We're all teaching lessons about God to our children all the time at home. And if obedience to you now is optional for them, obedience to God later will be optional to them. We need to prepare ourselves and our kids and each other to obey when obedience is hard. And we need to be clear about the relationship between love and obedience. Our obedience doesn't earn God's love. No, God's love is a gift. Our obedience demonstrates our love. It doesn't earn God's love. It demonstrates our love for him. But how do we obey without measuring ourselves by our obedience? How do we obey without falling into legalism, thinking that we're earning our way with God? How do we obey out of love? The answer is God gives us help. That's the second point. Introducing the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he will Help us. It's nice to know when the going gets rough, when obedience is hard, that we're not alone. So who is this person? Well, see how Jesus refers to him in this passage. In verses 16 and 26, he calls him the advocate. The advocate. Another version uses the word helper. Another version uses the word counselor. I'll send you another counselor. And that word comes from a root that means to call someone alongside. So the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to help us. The word was actually used in courts of law. And uh, a lawyer would be called alongside a defendant to help him. We still call lawyers counselor, don't we? So Jesus calls him advocate, helper, counselor. He also calls him, in verse 17, the spirit of truth. 
And in verse 26, he calls him the Holy Spirit. Those are the things Jesus calls him. And when we think about Jesus calling him the advocate, notice also that he uses the word another. He said, the Father will send another advocate to be with you. Another one. Another one. Well, Jesus has been that for them. He has been beside them. And the Father is going to send another one like him. There are two words in the Greek language that mean another. One is heteros. We get our word hetero from that. It means another of a different kind. The other word in the Greek language is alos, which means another of the same kind. That's the word that's used here. And the Father will send another counselor of the same kind. In other words, another one like Jesus the Holy Spirit will take Jesus' place. He'll fill in for Jesus in a way that is consistent with what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the word Trinity, you probably know, doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but the concept of it is everywhere. And so we use the word Trinity to describe who God is. Three persons, uh, equal in essence, united uh, from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have different functions. This passage that we're looking at this morning is full of references to the members of the Trinity as they relate to one another. A quick walk through. Verse 16, Jesus will ask the Father who will send the Holy Spirit. All three of them are in operation together at that point because all three of them are united. They are one. Verse 18, Jesus tells them, I will come to you. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I believe what he's talking about here is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he can say that because the Holy Spirit is one with him. In uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 7 as well as in Philippians 1.19, uh, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. They are united. They are one. So Jesus can say in the sending of the Holy Spirit, I will come to you, even though he's going away. Verse 20, he tells us that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Again, they are united. They are one. Verse 21, the Father and Jesus will show themselves to those who love Jesus. They work in concert because they are one. Verse 23, we show our love through obedience and the Father and the Son, it says, will make their home with us. And that is their spiritual presence at home with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You've got all three working together again. Verse 24, Jesus' words come from the Father who sent him. He is reflecting the Father perfectly because they are one. Verse 26, the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will teach and remind them of what Jesus said. So all three working together there as well. Verse 28, I'm going to read that one. Uh, you heard me say I'm going away 
and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The Jehovah's Witnesses love that one, um, believing that Jesus is a created being, but he is totally one, totally united, totally equal with God the Father, although their functions are different. The Jehovah's Witnesses just don't understand functional subordination. The two persons can be equal and yet have different roles. One more, verse 31. Jesus is going to the cross out of obedience to the Father because he loves the Father. They are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, totally united, in concert, working together. Trinity is all over this passage. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Where is he? Where is this Holy Spirit? Verse 17 speaks of his availability for us. Jesus says he lives with you now and will be in you later. He's with you now because I'm with you. He'll be in you later because he's coming in a special, different way. What does the Holy Spirit do? Verse 26 says, he will teach and remind Jesus' followers of Jesus. We'll talk more about that in chapter 16 as Jesus expands on the role of the Holy Spirit there. But in essence, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit will help you to love me after I'm not with you anymore. He will teach you and he will remind you of me. And if you love me, you'll obey me, even when obedience is hard. So the Holy Spirit is with believers when Jesus was with believers, and he will be in them when the day of Pentecost arrives, Acts chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit more than helps me to obey. He helps me to remember Jesus and love him more, and that leads to obedience. So what do you do when obedience becomes hard? You try harder? Try checking the level of your love for the Savior instead. What's it take to rekindle that love when the fire is burning low? Let me suggest just a few practical things that we can take home. One is time in God's word. If the fire is burning low, you can rekindle it by spending time looking at how God has revealed himself to us through his word. There are a lot of different translations out there. There are a lot of helps out there. There are a lot of Bible apps out there that, that can help us to do that. I like using a couple of them in particular. I like using YouVersion, Y-O-U version. Uh, I can switch translations readily, and there are devotional studies uh, aplenty. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them, and some of them go for a year, some of them go for a week or five days. It's, it's a terrific way to go because you can vary the pace instead of just falling into routine. I enjoy using that. One that I'm using right now is called Five Psalms. If you just look up at your app store, 
five psalms, what you do is you get five psalms and a proverb each day. And so, uh, you know, today is the 20th. You start with Psalm 20, then you go to Psalm 50, and then 80, and then 110, and then 140. And then you get Proverbs chapter 20 as well. It just lays all of that out for you. You just scroll from one to another. And what happens then is once a month, you will have read all of the Psalms and all of the Proverbs, and you'll begin to discern patterns and and. God will speak to you through that. Whatever you use, I would encourage you, get God's word into yourself daily. It will rekindle your love for the Savior when the fires are burning low. Another thing that can help us rekindle that love is Christian fellowship. I I love coming here and, and being with you. I love being with you throughout the week it's a good thing for believers to get together because they can sharpen one another and they can reignite one another. It's really good to be around people who are excited about their relationship with the Lord when mine has become a little lackluster. And so I would encourage you to seek out Christian fellowship. We need one another. We need to get close to other people whose faith is vibrant If you enjoy cooking on charcoal, try taking a coal out of the fire and setting it off by itself. What will happen? It'll it'll grow cold. And that happens to us when we're not in the fire of Christian fellowship as well. And in that fellowship, we will find accountability also. A brother or a sister that we can relate to who will challenge us when we need a challenge to get back into God's word, to do those things that will rekindle that love for Jesus. One more that that can help us to rekindle that love is worship. Coming here on Sunday morning is is a good thing. It's an energizing thing because it is good to worship God in the fellowship of other believers. Worshiping online is okay. It's better than nothing, but there's nothing like being together with other believers and hearing one another sing and uh, encouraging one another. And that's corporate worship. Personal worship is also important. Spending time with God personally at home uh, or in your car, listening to music, just worshiping him. I am amazed at the difference Christian music can make. I have a friend whose kids were, were quarreling on a Saturday morning, and he kept you know, correcting them and shaking his finger at them and threatening them. And nothing was working. They were just at each other until he put on some Christian music and then everything just calmed down in the home. It has a wonderful effect. Sometimes I'll pull up to a stoplight and the car that pulls up next to me will have its windows open. It's blaring stuff that I know if I listened to, I would be a different person. I I would not be a happy fellow, uh, stuff that is just not good to be listening to. But we can choose to, uh, to put praise into our hearts through listening to Christian music. Those are just a few things that can help us rekindle that love when the flame is burning low. God's word, Christian fellowship, and worship. If we find obedience hard, though, it's not a willpower issue. 
It's a love issue. We don't need to try harder. We need to treasure Jesus more. I heard of a father who took his son to every major league baseball stadium in America to see a baseball game there. Good thing. He had a friend, though, who said, I didn't know you liked baseball that much. And the dad said, I don't. I love my son that much. Love will lead us to do things that we might not be inclined to do on our own. What are you willing to do for love? You'll find some questions for further thought and discussion in your program. I hope you'll make use of those this coming week and uh, put some feet to this passage from God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, first of all, for your amazing love for us. We stand in awe of your incredible love and ask, what can we do by way of response? So, Father, I, I pray that you would stir our hearts to love you in return, to see the free gift that you offer us in Jesus, forgiveness of sin, a relationship with you, and that our response would be to fall before you in worship and to thank you for this gift and to put our full trust in you. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through this week, I, I pray that we would grow to treasure Jesus more so that our lives would be in greater conformity to your will for us and you would receive the glory from lives wholly surrendered to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.